Hello and welcome to episode 169 of the official EstablishTheRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan. I'm one of the co-founders here at ETR and March Madness. Yes, the NCAA tournament starts Thursday. And while I, I would say I'm not overly interested in teams and players, etc., I am very interested in the strategy behind, the optimal strategy behind all the bracket pools that I know everybody is playing for that. I am joined by some guys who've been using a data-driven approach for bracket pool strat for a long time now. It is Jason Lisk and David Hess from TeamRankings.com. Jason, how's it going? Going very good. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing well. I'm ready for March Madness. David, what's happening? Great. I'm pretty good, other than uh, waking up at 5.45 every morning by my kids. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in full disclosure, we did this pod one year ago last year. I thought it went really well. I thought it was going to really help people and very uh, informative. And then within, I don't know, 12 hours or 24 hours after we finished the pod, uh, the NCAA tournament was canceled due to COVID. And so we never released the pod. It's a lost episode somewhere. You could turn it into an <laughs> NFT and make a lot of dollars now off of the uh, lost pod. But now we're back. Um, by the way, before we get into it, if you're interested in taking a more advanced approach to your bracket, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, head to teamrankings.com backslash ETR. You'll get a discount for access to what these guys are working on. Um, you'll be able to smash Dan from accounting or whoever you play against in your bracket this year. Okay. I want to start with this. Um, I think that most people think of their bracket as, hey, I want to pick the right teams, not bracket strategy, right? So like for me personally, I haven't watched, I haven't bet a single college basketball game all season, but I still think that by implementing the right strategy, I can generate a pretty sizable edge. Like if we remove ourselves from saying, oh man, I know, I just know Florida State is going to beat Oklahoma. I'm sure of it. You know, if we understand that we aren't as good as we think we are, there's an edge right there. So let's start with you, David. Is this the right approach to take to say, hey, picking the right teams and being obsessed with team level stuff is not the way to win your bracket pool? Or am I getting too strat on this? No, you, you're right. Um, I think using a little humility in your strategy and knowing or realizing you don't know really who's going to win every game and there are no locks is kind of one of the keys to bracket strategy. If you get locked into, man, this one upset is going to happen. You end up, uh, you end up taking risks that you shouldn't, or you end up advancing teams uh, further than, than is really deserved. And uh, it makes a lot more sense. It's a lot better strategy to take uh, a less, uh, a view that's less driven by your, your heart and your gut and more driven by advancement odds and pick percentage and, knowing which teams are undervalued and overvalued and um, just not getting locked in on trying to be smart and instead trying to execute a smart strategy. So, and there's a difference between those. I I think there's a lot of people that are college basketball experts that are probably great at breaking down the matchups, but not very good at winning bracket pools. Right. Because the strategy and a lot of times like what we talk about with best ball or even we talk about season long fantasy football, there's an overarching strategy beyond, hey, I'm just going to take Jalen Rager every time the ninth round that I'm going to print. Like that's not really your strategy. Um, What do you think about that, Jason, about uh, overarching strategies for this stuff? Yeah. And so kind of touching on what David said, but also the thing to keep in mind is um, you build your strategy based on what pool you're playing in. And this is similar to, say, playing fantasy football. You, you draft differently in different types of leagues and different types of contests. Um, 
different point systems, PPR versus not using a flex, you know, a two QB system. Well, same with, same with the bracket. Um, the right picks may be different depending on what contest you're trying to win, how many people you're playing, how many points you get. If you get points for upsets, uh, like, like seed difference or the number of the seed, that totally changes the dynamic of how risky you need to be in picking upsets because the boom for the buck is huge there. But in a in a bracket, let's say, where you, you get one point in the first round and it doesn't matter who you pick, those, those, those individual points aren't all that valuable. The championship pick is. And so if you go through and just like build your bracket uh, from the ground up by picking each round independently and then being, oh, wait, I ended up with that team in the final four, you're at a disadvantage. Uh, you need to know, you almost need to build top down in pools that reward with lots of points in the final four and then see where you can find value elsewhere. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about the standard kind of bracket pool. I think a standard pool that most people play in is probably like, I don't know, 100 to 500 entries. Most of the money goes to first place. Um, you don't get points for upsets. Just a standard pool like that. Jason, how would you... Uh, think about the strategy for some of those standard size uh, and standard payout pools. Well, for, first of all, I'll say that um, we have data on what our customers enter because you can you can enter lots of different pools and you can actually get advice from multiple types of pools. And so we get the data. Uh, I would say the average pool size is closer, David, don't you think, between 25 and 50? It's okay. probably about- Yeah, for our customers, it's definitely a, a little bit yeah. lower than that. I, I we may have a, a demographic that skews less professional than maybe you are. You know, <laughs> we have people like uh, you know wives that are doing it to beat their husbands and stuff like that too. So, but yeah, maybe the higher value, higher dollar pools probably are, are a little bit uh, larger. Yeah. So, so there's a variety of strategies. So, so we actually customize for a variety of sizes because um, you can see obviously a hundred is a bigger pool than if you're in your local league with, with 15 buddies. Um, but it's way smaller and closer to that strategy than if you're in a $10,000 con or 10,000 person contest on a major website, trying to win a, a big prize. That's a long shot. And so the strategies depend, uh, they vary along the entire spectrum. I mean, the smaller the pool, the more conservative you want to be. That's just, I think that's true in lots of contests and it's true in bracket contrast. Um, you know, if you only had, let's say, let's say a hundred people, um, probably how the national championship picks will, will pan out is uh, they'll be concentrated on like three or four teams. And so even like a two seed may have only like two or three people picking them. Right. And so you want to be more conservative. There's no need in a lot of those to take a really long shot uh, because you can pick a, a decent team and still be only heads up against maybe 10, 20 people, the, then you have to beat with your advantage in other, in other picks from the yeah, first round. It's important to note that like uh, the, the basic strategy is you find a pick or a combination of picks that is more likely to happen than your baseline odds to win the pool. You know, you're naive one in a hundred or one in 200 and that's undervalued. And sometimes that is a champion pick, like Jason was saying, and sometimes it's not, sometimes you are, you go with the popular champion pick and you do a couple of, final four teams that are dark horses or, or something like that. But the idea is you find a combination of undervalued picks that is more likely to happen than your baseline odds. And then once you do that, you kind of get yourself into a, it's, you're essentially in a smaller pool. You, if you get those picks correct, you're in a smaller pool against a small group of people. You go conservative in the rest of the bracket and let them trip up by picking too many upsets. So, or, 
uh, taking a long shot that they shouldn't. You don't want to wreck your bracket by, you know, your your three gambits come through and you're in great shape, and then you have extra risk over here that that kills you, and then someone that just picked the chalk in the other part of the bracket ends up beating you. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people listen to this play DFS tournaments, and it's kind of the same strategy with being contrarian. I think one thing that that we do in DFS that correlates is projected ownership, right? And it's been it's gotten to the point where like you basically can't play. DFS tournaments without having some projected ownership in mind. How are you guys going about finding what your opponents are going to do in brackets? Like we know that like a lot of people are just going to pick favorites, but we don't know for sure. Um, how do you go about finding uh, what people are going to do? Yeah, there are some uh, major picking sites or some major pool hosting sites that publish data on this. So ESPN publishes data. Um, we have some agreements uh, with some of the other sites um, to get feeds of public picking data from them. So we know um, actually who's being picked in, in real time. And, um, you know, we use a weighted average of those. And we, we also have to do some adjustments because in the beginning, there's a thing where ESPN, they preload a whole bunch of favorites. And so when you look at the public data earlier, it looks like everyone's picking uh, the number one seats to make the final four. So we, we do some, you know, unskewing of that data and, and adjustments to for, forecast how it's going to end up at the end. Um, and then this year, there's also, I think, going to be issues with um, with COVID because let's say you, you have your public data on Tuesday. Uh, it's after the deadline for a swap and a team drops out of the tournament the public data is not going to immediately all of a sudden switch over to what the final picks are going to be. It's going to take time for people to go back to their brackets and make changes. So, you know, we've set up a system where as soon as a switch happens, we have a, we have a process in place to project what the final picks are going to be by, you know, dropping that team's picks and adjusting everything else up and whatever. So it's going to be issues with that this year. If you're just looking at the raw data, you're going to be, you're going to, see some misleading information if you're not aware of what's happening and, and proactively adjusting for stuff. Yeah, I was surprised. I think it was maybe two years ago. I mean, yeah, I just went on Yahoo and I could see what percent people were picking for each team to advance in each round. And then obviously, if you have a win probability model, if the baseline lines up uh, where people are overpicking or underpicking the underdog or whatever it is, you can just advance the opposite team based on the win probability model. Is that just as simple as it gets, Jason, at the highest level? Obviously, it's more complicated than that. But like finding a good win probability model that you believe in for each game, you know, X team has X percent chance to advance to the next round and then compare that to what the field is doing and just trying to be contrarian there. Is that at the highest level what people should be doing? Well, it's so, to some extent, yes. You want you want to be you want to find those values. You want to find you want to balance value and risk, though, because this is maybe a little different than a contest like, let's say, an, um, a, a pick 'em contest in an NFL pool, where you pick each week and you know I just picked that one game and the outcome. But here you have six rounds where things continue and things get progressively riskier. Um, so you have to balance value and risk. You can't take every value that you identify, and that maybe that's the difference between say a human. Uh, just trying to go through and say, oh, yeah, this team's undervalued. I can look at, you know, uh, this team's being picked, you know, 10% of the time and they have a, a 20% chance of advancing that round or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but where, where the, the simulations we do and the more advanced stuff comes in and having uh, underlying power ratings that, that, that run those simulations, that power ratings we put together, what those identify 
is areas which 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 values are best to take in combination with each other for the size of your pool because sometimes um i'll just give you an example sometimes we actually recommend picking a popular championship champion pick because there are enough values in other areas where our models project that we are in a better advantageous position by actually following the crowd on that and beating them everywhere else whereas an individual might say, oh, I'm taking that that third best team because they're the value play. It depends on what else the bracket does to get to that point. So, yes, you want value, but you have to balance it with your risk and the size of your pool and who you're trying to beat. Yeah, yeah another I, example there is pretty much every year the 16 seeds are technically value because they're always – Nobody picks picked them. by nobody, but they have a three percent chance to win or whatever. But you don't you don't just take every team that has value because sure. you, it's way it's, too much risk. Speaking of of that, it's actually contra- it can be contrarian to pick a lot of favorites. Uh, I I haven't like back tested or anything, but I've definitely played some pools where I literally picked the favorite, not the seed favorite, the betting favorite, or what I projected to be the betting favorite in every single game for every single round. And somehow that ends up being contrarian. Like people get such FPS and they they want to pick upsets. They want to be different. And you can just literally pick the betting favorite in every round and end up with what I think is plus EV. I mean, how many times in your life can you be plus EV by literally just taking the favorite in every single round? Now, I'm not sure that's applicable here. And I'm not sure that's the best strategy for outright winning. But I think to have a good result, I think that that's, that's, pretty plus ev depending who you're playing as especially if people you play people you're playing as are picking too many upsets i'm curious what you think of that jason and just in general do you think that people are picking just when they're picking randomly are they just picking too many upsets so yes that that is absolutely applicable and that's probably if you were if you were to line up like reasons why we create edge i would think number one is that the, the public is very inefficient and likes to pick too many upsets in this type of pool um they you know they almost expect you to pick a lot of upsets when the points don't don't incentivize it um because you know upsets are they're upsets for a reason they're fun to watch it's fun to experience it but they they rare they don't happen all that often and um so you know picking upsets is the silent killer for most bracket entries and where you gain edge on a lot of people you could absolutely build in a 20 person pool and pick all the betting favorites. You know, sometimes you'll have a three over a two or whatever, and or two over a one, but you could build something like that and probably have pretty good edge on a very small pool. Now, as you get bigger, you have to identify where, you know, cause somebody's going to just like poker or something, you're going to catch, somebody's going to catch cards if you let enough people hang around. And if you play in a big enough pool, somebody will catch the right result with a seven seed getting to the final four. So you have to take a few more chances and find those value plays to, to do it there. But yes, absolutely picking upsets. And I would say the other thing people do uh, kind of what you were referencing and it's related. Um, let's say the average final four ha- seed numbers add up to 11. I think that's accurate over the last 20 years, whatever. You don't want to go pick a final four where the seed numbers add up to 11. That's way too risky, and you're you're very unlikely to hit the actual four team combination. People people strive for perfection and end up getting zero. When you mm-hmm. could when you're going to win a lot of pools by getting two teams to the final four, and having the champion. And if you have both in the title game, you're probably in pretty good shape. And there's also some evidence when we look back at past public pick data from past tournaments that people almost force a quota and only pick one number one seed to be in the title game. 
which almost if you think there's a chance that two are going to be there, you you might get some value by just having two. Because a lot of people think, oh, if I'm picking a one seed to win it, I got to have an underdog in the, in the other game. Um, and so, yeah, there's absolutely value. And that, that contributes to why people, I think, do poorly in March Madness contest. All right. A lot of what we're talking about here is understanding win probability, right? It's the only way to compare uh, teams advancing to what the field is going to do is by understanding the win probability. So obviously it's easy for round one because we know the lines and you can imply when you can you can uh, imply win probability from the lines. And we think that the market is pretty accurate when it comes to that. But as we go down the line here and we start getting into Sweet 16 games and Elite 8 games, how would you go about understanding win probability there, projecting win probability there? David, how can we project out into rounds two and three? Because we need to know the win probability there just in case Oklahoma State plays North Carolina, you know, in round three or something like that. Yeah, so so the basic approach there is, um, you know, you use we use power ratings. And um, I think there are lots of different power ratings out there. People... A lot of people listening are probably familiar with uh, Pomeroy if they're college basketball fans that are you know into data and analytics and stuff like that. Um, there's there's a lot of different rating systems. They all essentially boil down, or almost all of them boil down to adjusting your margin of victory based on your opponent and the game location. Maybe some other stuff, adjusting margin of victory or efficiency to figure out how good the performance really was once you account for that using some kind of a weighted average to figure out how good uh, a team's average performances or, or, you know, recent performances have been, and then using that rating system to project out later rounds. Um, Usually you also need to account for location because teams are flying around the country between rounds and, you know, Duke always plays the home home game and not a home game, but they always play in Greensboro. um, This year, everyone's in Indianapolis, so there's no travel. So it's a little bit different this year. You don't have to account for that as much. Uh, Teams should be traveling there right after their tournaments. So they'll be rested. They're not going to be traveling the night before or anything. There's not going to be home crowds. So it's a little bit simpler in that respect this year. Um, But the other thing you need to, to worry about with the power rating approach is you can't just take the raw power rating from your model and plug it in to to the tournament bracket and and have the best odds you need to um make adjustments um there's all kinds of stuff that is affecting teams it's affecting win odds besides the average performance over the course of the season or even a weighted average of recent recent performances i mean there's there's injuries um like Colin Gillespie on Villanova went down uh, three games ago, I think it was. And Villanova's been terrible the last two games without him. And so if you just use Villanova's raw rating, you're going to have them way better than they should be. They'll, they're probably going to lose a round earlier than they would have if Gillespie was playing. I mean, who knows exactly, right? Maybe they'll pull some upsets, they'll go deep. But, but you need to adjust for the things that are affecting the team's injuries, um, playing time changes where or, or lineup changes where uh, a team switches uh, who they're playing together and all of a sudden things click with this new lineup and they go on a run. Great example of that is uh, 2019 Oregon. They switched to a taller lineup in, in mid-February or late February that started just destroying people on defense. They, they were the best defensive team in the nation after that. So coming into the tournament, they were a 12 seed, but they were probably the quality of a 
four or five seeds since they made that switch. You know, there's teams change and you have to account for that stuff. Uh, you can't just use your raw ratings or you're going to, you're going to miss key value opportunities. Um, other stuff we account for is, uh, you know, some teams feast on destroying cupcakes. They, they leave their starters in the whole game. They rack up big margins and it affects power ratings or some teams pull them early and, and they don't get that big boost for those games. I always think of the Louisville teams a few years ago used to just always destroy uh, any, any uh, cupcakes they were playing when, when Patino was coaching them. And uh, they'd always be overrated if you, if you don't take out those games. Um, uh, what else do we do? This year, there's a uh, Kansas. COVID this year. Well, COVID this year, yeah. Huge adjustment. So, yeah, so Jason, actually, you did the research on that. You want to talk quickly about the COVID adjustment? That That's pretty interesting, yeah, sure. I think. I mean, D- David is our, our guru. He pulled all the data. I just I just wrote about it and, and put it together. But, you know, COVID's been a big issue this year and, 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 and probably creates a lot of uncertainty around this tournament. We had less games. So that, that's a big factor anyway. Some teams have played 20 games where normally they'd play 30 to 35 by now, and you'd have just more data on how they did. Um, but also teams would go on pause. You know, they'd get games postponed. They'd, they'd have to take breaks where they actually could not practice because of protocols. Uh, somebody would test positive. They shut down the program for two weeks, and they'd go without practice, and then they'd come back and play two weeks later. Um for the, you know, it had about a three-point impact across Division One. Like the first game back, teams were three points worse than you would expect. They perform, underperformed against the spread. But the impact was even bigger for tournament-type teams, like the top 50 or so teams um, that, that paused. The impact was about six points. It was huge. Um, and there were some individual cases because you never know how individual teams respond or how long they're out and what, what this, the circumstances. Some, some could have guys that were actually sick and, are, and can't even play at, at full, full strength, but they're coming out. Like Louisville this year, for example, uh, lost by, I think, 45 to Wisconsin in their first game back from their first pause and then went on another pause uh, six weeks later and lost to North Carolina by 37. Um, those were two outlier games for them. And if you include those in their ratings, it pulls them down. Now, I don't know if Louisville is going to make the tournament as we sit here today because they lost again, but they're an example of a team whose two worst performances when you adjust were because of COVID. And then you, you extrapolate that over lots of teams, guys that were out, key players for COVID. It creates a lot of, um, I guess, potential for edge, but also things to look at. And, and so one of the things that I've been doing over the last week is digging into teams and, and see why maybe they had a performance, a player out, things like that um, for COVID. And those are things we account for to adjust our ratings to drive for this year. Yeah. I have a couple more questions about COVID in a little, but I, I, I wanted to ask one more thing about the win probability. Let's say people, they don't have a win probability model. They don't know where to start. How accurate, how useful do you think the odds to make the final four odds to win the title betting markets are? Because we know those are, I wouldn't say they're liquid, but I think there's a, a reasonable amount of action uh, in those. And then and then we'll also get markets that come out next week. We're recording this on Friday. Uh, we'll get markets next week, like odds to win the East Regional, odds to win the South Regional. Uh, David, what do you think about uh, using those in lieu of a win probability model, if that's all you can get your hands on? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's definitely way better than not using any data at all. I think there's there's definitely value in those. Um, we've looked into using them for, for our stuff and we do, you know, we, we go through 
like Jason was saying, we do a deep dive on all the teams. We come up with our ratings. And then we do look at the, the betting market data and we adjust for some of it. But what we've found is basically, since most of the lines, you can't bet both sides, you can bet a team's odds. You can keep smashing a team, betting the, the max on them, and you can make them look like they have better odds to win or to make it than they really do. So um, in one direction, it's more useful than the other. If a team has a really... Uh, long odds and no one's betting them, you should take that as a sign that they probably do not have great odds. But if a team is, uh, has really short odds, sometimes that's because there's just some idiot that's betting a bunch of money on them. And so it's kind of, it's a asymmetric um, impact there. So yeah. there's useful, it's useful and it's definitely something you should look at. You just it's can't short a, the other side. Yeah. If we yeah, could short the other side, you'd see where the market evened out on some teams. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's not as useful as, you know, it's not nearly as sufficient as individual game lines, um, but it is, it's useful. Um, yeah. For sure. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the lack of two-way market, I, mean, I know Rufus has talked about before, like there should be no such thing as one-way markets, you know, two-way, there should be a two-way market on, on everything. And that would obviously make everything a lot more liquid, but is what it is. Um, okay, we talked long enough without getting to teams. Do people want want to talk teams? I I don't know anything about teams, but that's why we have you guys. Uh, uh, Jason, is there any teams that you can tell? And by the way, it's Friday at one thirty. We don't even know who's in the tournament yet. But even though the bracket isn't out yet, are there any teams that you think just out of the gate are undervalued right now? Maybe in the odds to win market or the odds to final four market or something like that. Yes. Um... So one team that, that I'm, I'm positive that we've dug in a little bit, we're going to make our final full adjustments once these games are done this weekend. But Connecticut um, is a team with a massive difference um, and that has dealt with several issues that are kind of hiding their quality. Their best player is a guy named James Bonite, a sophomore uh, leading scorer. He was good early. He broke it. I think he had an elbow injury in early January, he missed like a month. The team also went on a COVID pause. And so they went like four and four with him out and, and coming back from their pause. And um, with him, they look like a top 10 team for sure. And they're probably going to get seated. So their value next week may depend on where they get seated. Mm -hmm. um, Cause right now I've got them projected right around a seven and eight. If they, if they beat Creighton today and, and win the Big East tournament, the cat may be out of the bag a little bit more, but they've just been crushing teams. Um, their only two then. losses. Huh? What now? Then go Creighton, please. Go Creighton, uh, yes. So if yeah. Creighton wins, um, although we probably don't want them on the eight line if we think they're a great value and matched up with Gonzaga yeah. or somebody, True, right? yeah. we'd rather them be like a six where they might be an undervalued and, and, and able to beat the three. Um, but Connecticut is a team – that is significantly better. Uh, their only loss was uh, since he came back was at Villanova when Gillespie was healthy and when Villanova was a top 10 team. And otherwise they've been destroying teams. And, and um, so Connecticut's definitely up there. Uh, they're one. Uh, Purdue is probably one a, but Purdue will be seated higher. they will be like a three or four. I think um, they played today against Ohio state. Purdue's thing is a, they're young. They've got a lot of young talent. But B, they've had a lot of like injuries that have kept various different players out. And so with this limited season, they haven't had like their full complement on for that many games. Um, they've had players out with injury. Their best shooter had COVID. They didn't pause, but he 
missed games and then was ineffective. He, he shoots 45% for the year, but went made zero threes in his first three games back and just didn't play much. Uh, he was obviously working back from that. And so when Purdue is fully healthy and has their five starters, they are a top 10 to, to, to five to 10 team uh, that is more dangerous than the raw numbers might suggest. And so those are two that, that we're going to be looking at. It's interesting. I, I understand what you're saying about adjusting teams power rating and adjusting their outlook because they missed time or due to COVID or whatever. But my instinct would be that when it comes to the actual bracket, once we have our power rankings adjusted for COVID, once we have the team strength adjusted for COVID, how how would we adjust our bracket for the possibility of a COVID outbreak? Like I understand there's more uncertainty in this tournament for a lot of reasons, right? Like uh, teams, a true strength hasn't shown because of a lot of different situations. The sample size is smaller because the season was shorter. But once we adjust for all that, is there anything else we can do in our bracket to be like, hey, we know that something could happen with COVID here. Is there anything people should be thinking about in their bracket? Well, David's been doing work. Like part of his work has been prepping for all these potential uh, craziness. So I'll let him talk about kind of what he's prepping and then I can maybe go into kind of how you adjust some teams. Well, I mean, on, on our end, the, the prep work that I've been doing is basically getting our tools ready so that if some team drops, we can quickly roll out, you know, updates to our picks and updates to our public picking data projections and all that stuff. But in terms of picking your bracket, um, I think the main thing is there is some chance that a team could drop out due to COVID mid-tournament, right? So Gonzaga wins their first four games and then they have an outbreak before the final four and they drop out like that adds some uncertainty to basically every game. The favorite has a little bit smaller chance to advance than they would in a normal year because COVID could beat them instead of the underdog beating them. But it's a very, it's a really small chance of any given team having that happen at any point. Um, Jason, yeah. you, you did the research on this, so you, well, you probably know the numbers. It, explain to me, I, I wasn't even following. Is every single game essentially being played in a bubble? The, they are not being played in a bubble. What they're doing, I'll, I'll just walk through what the NCAA's plan is. Um, obviously, they're all at their individual conference tournament sites this week and right. not in, under the NCAA protocol yet. But the NCAA is requiring if you travel to Indianapolis on, I think, Sunday, by Sunday or by Saturday. If, you are, if you're in an auto bid, you can go Saturday. If not, you wait. But you have to return seven days of negative tests for anybody that travels there, any of your essential personnel or players. So first of all, they're testing this week to be to, to meet that requirement from the NCA. When they get there, they'll be kind of semi-bubble, but not fully. All the teams will be staying in hotels. Indianapolis has like a big skywalk that connects all the hotels and arenas downtown. And so that they'll all be there. And I think they have to basically hole up for 48 hours no practices, continue to test. And what the NCAA has laid down as a rule is between selection Sunday night and Tuesday night, if any team has to drop out because they have an outbreak or whatever, uh, they will swap in like the, the, the first teams that miss the field. So if you were like the, the last bubble team to just barely miss, you could get in this year. So that could happen. And that could change the bracket because you might have a, a bubble team swap into the five seed line, which – completely changes the dynamic of this particular region. Right. To be clear, they're not going to reseed the whole thing. Just whatever nope. team drops out is directly replaced by. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, it just seems, it strikes me as a, a more unlikely, far more unlikely than it was during the regular season for a team to have to drop out. 
Yes. So, so yeah. after Tuesday night, what they're doing, Adam, is um, if you if you have to drop out, uh, it's just a basically a no contest, and the team you were scheduled to play is advancing to the next round. Right. But the NCAA has communicated like the uh, Dan Gavitt. I think he's a, a executive vice president. Um, son of the former Big East commissioner, Dave Gavitt. Um, Dan Gavitt has said, basically, if you have six players or five players, you can play. Um, and what the NCAA is doing, so so right now teams are kind of responsible for themselves. When they get to Indy, they all have to wear a bracelet. They have to isolate on travel buses. Um, they're supposed to maintain different distances, and these bracelets are designed to basically go off if you get too close to a teammate. Um, <laughs> no, I'm serious. And so what their plan is, is if somebody tests positive, as long as you followed protocols and your bracelet, you didn't, you know, you aren't being ruled out for violating the close contact rule, the team can stay. And so my guess is the risk is more like a player could test and you might lose a, a good player, but they're going to bend over backwards not to have a team withdrawal. Now, today we had Virginia withdraw from the ACC, but that's a little different. They might be viewing it as let's be cautious so we get into the NCAA tournament and not have an outbreak let's just call it good for now and test over the next three days and go. And whereas, you know, next week, I think the NCAA is going to bend over backwards not to have that happen. If you didn't violate protocols, you're probably okay. As long as you have enough players. Yeah. So, so, so the, there is risk. And then Dave's David's mentioned it. I looked into it. Um, I kind of did some estimates. The rate at which teams have had positive tests and gone on pause has gone down just like the nation has. Um, sure. We were having like two or three teams out of what three fifty in Division One basketball per day going on pause in like January. Right now it's down to like you hear about it in, in like Virginia today, Duke two days ago, um, a team earlier this. It's like one every couple days, and so the rate has gone down. It's improved. Um, so the individual chances are like way less than one percent that you have like a team. But here's the other thing: I want you to think about Gonzaga. Let's say you pick Gonzaga right? Let's say their chances are 30%. I'm just throwing that number. We haven't run the simulations yet. Um, so is there some risk they drop out? Yes, I guess. But there's a risk with everything in sports, right? If you're playing these contests, there's a risk the, the team you picked, the star player gets hurt. He turns his ankle, blows his knee out. There's a risk you get beat by a last second half court heave. It happens. Um, there's risk in everything. Is there slightly more? Maybe. But I, it, it'd be less than 10% of what that team's well, odds are. The the real issue is that you wouldn't be able to pick it out anyways. You don't know if it's going to be Gonzaga right. or USC. Exactly. So, yeah, to me, it, it's kind of... Uh, pick the team um, you want. Pick yeah. the team you want. After you've adjusted the power rating, I agree. Okay. Last thing I want to ask about is I, I think a, a one way to think about the bracket and how many upsets you should pick or how strong are the teams that people are picking. So we have a vague idea or a rough idea of who's going to be the, the top, maybe the top one seeds and the top... Two seeds, how would you say that the top of the NCAA basketball tier ranks this year compared to other years? We can go with Jason. So um, we'll just say Gonzaga looks like a historically dominant team. Now, which, you know, there's been like maybe three or four teams like them heading into a tournament recently, but it's definitely not every year. Gonzaga is definitely in the upper tier of best overall team. Um, now they played less games, 
and people will will kind of downgrade them because they play in the West Coast Conference, but they dominate. They're actually the results are actually better against top competition. It's almost as if they were bored against the bottom of their weak comp, weaker conference. But against tournament teams, they beat up on Iowa, who's probably a two seed. They beat up on Kansas, who's a two or three seed. They beat up on or they they West Virginia played them tough, but West Virginia is a top sixteen team. Um, is there somebody there missing? I think they played four division, four four major teams, won comfortably, and they beat BYU three times. BYU shot lights out in the championship game, and they still came back and beat them. BYU put up a performance that would beat most teams, shot like eighty percent in the first half, and still lost the game to Gonzaga. Oh, um, so they're 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 a really really good team. Could they lose? Absolutely. We've seen it happen. I mean, upsets can happen, but they are a strong number one. Baylor's a pretty good second best team and Michigan's pretty good. So I, I, the one line is above average overall for, for a typical tournament. Um, there's, there's, there's no weak links on the one line where you'd say, Oh, that team, um, you know, you can just look at records. Baylor's Baylor's lost one game and it was right after they came back from their COVID pause. Gonzaga's lost zero. Michigan's yeah. lost like three going through the big 10 when it's a re- the best conference in America. So yeah. Um, I mean, th- those three teams are really good. And then there's a, a tier of teams that are, are close to uh, behind that tier. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if that's the case most years that people would say, hey, these three teams are awesome. But you make a good case for it being an outlier for above average number one seeds. Um, yeah, we have data going back on, on our um, our tournament advancement odds. You know, every year, obviously, we calculate the advancement odds so if you look at the total chance for a one seed to win the title historically the last 10 years or so the average is about 50 percent that a one seed will win pre-tournament and this year obviously we don't know the bracket yet but we do season projections every day based on our power ratings it's our unadjusted ones but i think our adjusted ones will actually bump the one seeds up a little bit is my guess based on the research that we've done so far. But right now the combined odds of the top four teams winning is at 62%. I think when I looked at it this morning, this is probably going to be like 65 or something once we make adjustments. So compared to the historical average, it's, it's a strong batch of, of one seats. It's about the same as it was um, with uh, Duke and Virginia uh, in 2019, which was also a, a strong Batch. Duke looked like similar to Gonzaga, uh, a dominant team. Once you account for all, they had some injury issues. Once you accounted for those, they looked dominant. They didn't end up winning. Virginia won, who was, I think, our second best team going in. But um, it's a similar profile to that year, where there's really strong one seeds, and one of them looks really good. Right. Probably the 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 most similar year might be 2015. That was the year Kentucky went undefeated. And then and you and Wisconsin was really good. Yeah, and Duke, Duke was great. One yeah. really good. And I think Villanova's the other. And Villanova's the only one that didn't make it. Uh, Michigan State was a seven seed and made it. But three ones made it. Two made it to the final. Wisconsin upset, undefeated Kentucky in the semi. But that was a that was probably the 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 other year in the last decade where all of the one seeds were kind of as dominant as they are now, and the and the top team was what it was. So it's going to be tough for Gonzaga to win it, but they're still like in that range of 2015 Kentucky. Sure. Of course. Okay. Before we get out of here, I each of you guys, the people need to pick who's going 
to win it and who has the best value right now. I know you already mentioned Connecticut. I know you already mentioned Purdue, Jason. Uh, who's going to win it and who has the best value right now? I mean, Gonzaga is the favorite. Okay. Um, if I had to pick a team, I mean, and and we'll see where the public pick data comes out because here's here's what's an interesting thing about this tournament, Adam. Um, these aren't traditional blue bloods in the sense they have national championship banners, and the public sometimes can overvalue like the name on the jersey. Sure. And so, if this was Kentucky in on the uniform that Gonzaga is playing, they might be picked more than Gonzaga is. And so oh, that's de- what we don't uh, know. Definitely will be. Yeah. And so, and Baylor's not a traditional power. Michigan's the only one of those that has won a title, and that was when I was in high school, and I'm not young. Um, I won't, you know, you can do the math. It was 1989. Um, and so, uh, you know, the top, the, t- the, the top line, we've had traditional powers. Duke's not in this tournament. Kentucky won't be in this tournament. There's, I mean, there's, so how is that going to impact the public? We'll see. But if you had to put Gonzaga is the top choice, Baylor's the second choice, and Michigan – as 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 David broke down, I mean, there's a 65% chance roughly that a one seed will win this tournament, and it's concentrated probably on those three. Yeah. David, any any picks for the people? Well, I mean, Gonzaga is a clear title pick, but if I want to go undervalued uh, non-one seed, I'm going to uh, be a homer and say Kansas. Because mm. <laughs> they, since they, they made talent. their – they made a, a change to the way they're playing defense in mid-February on the perimeter. And since then they've played like as good as a top five or top three team. So they've been playing excellent and Bill Self is a good coach and, and I just want to make a homer pick. So, and you went, and you went to Kansas, you said, correct? I didn't go to Kansas, but I grew up in Kansas. I've been rooting for them since I was a little kid. You know, I used okay. to be, I used to play in my driveway with my brother. We'd be Rex Walters and Adonis Jordan. That's that's an old reference there. I yeah. guess no one's, no one's going to get that. We can oh, hope Missouri gets put in their bracket, David. Then, then yeah. it will make their run easy. All right. This was awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, again, if you are interested in more diving deep on your bracket this year for a discount on everything these guys are doing at Team Rankings, head to teamrankings.com backslash ETR. Jason, tell the people where they can find you if they would like to search you out. Uh, well, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Jason Lisk. Pretty easy to remember. Uh, just my name. Uh, we have a team rankings account at team rankings. Um, and check out our stuff. Not only will we have these projections, I'll have articles up. We'll have our notes on all these teams. If you really want to dive in on why we adjusted teams, which ones we chose to, uh, adjust their raw ratings. Um, and we'll have, you know, you can get customized brackets, all the stuff you can generate more than one bracket. You can see different rules and uh, lots of fun tools that we have to play with. We're just if you're a, if you're a geek and you love March Madness, uh, I promise you it'll be worth it. Cool, uh, David. Do you want to tell the people where they can find you if you want to be found? You can you can choose to be anonymous too. If uh, you want. Sure. Yeah. My my Twitter handle is Audacity of Hoops. Um, that's where to find me. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Audacity of Hoops. All right, cool. Thanks so much, guys, for being on. I'll be back next week with Silva as we get set for NFL Free Agency, which is actually opening for real on the 17th, which is pretty crazy. Okay, for Jason, for David, for Producer Luke, I am Adam. Good luck, everybody. Mm -hmm.